All right, let's gear up and start the mission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast for that dreaded year 2020. This is your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. You're hearing this on New Year's Eve. I hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas holiday and that you're planning on being safe on New Year's Eve. And I'm not just talking about drunk driving. If you have to go out, I hope you're staying masked and keeping that physical distance because we want to be here next year to hopefully enjoy a much better year than the last. So for this last podcast of 2020, I'm going to do a little bit of a year-end wrap-up, and then I'm going to read a chapter from the book that's coming out in February called Love, Death. So let's, without any further ado, get started and talk about the year we wish wasn't. So, 2020, end of a decade, an election year, an Annus Horribilis. A year when you coordinated masks with your outfit. At least I did. I'm sure there are plenty others out there who did. The year you had apocalyptic dreams. I had them too. I also had the dream where, you know, the dream you always had when you were a professional or in working somewhere. Mine was that I knew I had a test at college and At my college, we had to cross a railroad track and walk up a big hill to get there. And I would leave my dorm in plenty of time to go to this test. And then a train would come by. And this was the never-ending train. And I couldn't get up the hill to my test. So that was the dream I, I had well into my many decades until this year. And this year, I dreamed about being somewhere without a mask. This year, this pandemic has invaded our subconscious and our fears about it come out in our dreams. This was also the year a lot of people decided that Stephen King's The Stand was prophetic. It was a year when we panicked over having enough toilet paper and antiseptic wipes. It's a year when we figured out how to order our groceries online. When we realized in the 40 years, this is me, since I taught seventh grade math, all the terminology had been changed for fourth grade math. This was when... I had to turn my home office into a virtual classroom for my grandkids. 
It's a year we won't soon forget. At least I won't forget it. And believe me, I've seen enough years. There are a bunch of them I'd like to forget, but you never do. It's a year that's now slouching toward its demise, and thank goodness, and all the doomsayers are all of a sudden suggesting, telling us that we need to find a positive about this year. The year we wish wasn't. So, you want something positive? Okay, here you go. We had an election, a secure one, a well-monitored one, an election where the loser threw a hissy fit from the day he lost until, well, probably forever. Where's the positive in that, you ask? In the identity of the loser. Hang on. I'll do better. Five books, as in, five of my books got published two novellas, and three novels. Now, the real accomplishment would have been if I'd written those five books this year and they got published. The truth is they were all completed, edited, and proofread some time ago, and I was waiting for the right time to publish them. The schedule of publication was actually determined in 2019 before we'd ever heard of COVID-19. Another positive effect. As lockdowns took effect, I sold more books and had more page reads in March, April, and May of this year than any other time since my first book was published in 2000. Okay, here's another positive. My first published book, now out of print, had its 20th bookversary this year. So there's that. The reality, however, is that from March until the end of October, I didn't write a single word on a new project. But the positive in that is I did eventually develop a renewed sense of creativity, something I thought 2020 had zapped from me. And it was all due to my annual National Novel Writing Month that got me back into the habit of writing something every day. And if you're a writer, I can't stress how important that is. But also in 2020, almost every day came the name of someone well-known singers, songwriters, actors, sports figures, who died from complications of COVID-19. Then came posts on social media from my friends lamenting spouses, siblings, parents, grandparents, and yes, children dying of COVID-19. It was so easy to give up and accept an inevitability that you felt powerless to even try to change. And a lot of us fell into that. Some much longer than others. I managed to pull myself out of it. And writing was what did that for me. 
and, believe it or not, doing this podcast because I missed interacting with people and at least I can talk to you. Even though it's very one-sided, you can't talk back, but at least I'm talking to someone. The positive from all that is that our faith in science and in a government that I served for three decades to do what needed to be done was strengthened. Well, the government part actually wasn't, but that was because of poor leadership from the top. The positive is you did the things others scoffed at, complained about, rallied against, and you didn't get sick. It was somewhat tempting to gloat when the number of infections would spike after rallies by people defying the guidelines, but you didn't. That was positive. You stuck to your plan. You wore a mask. You didn't leave the house except for critical supplies. You kept physically distant, even when, in your neighborhood, no one wore a mask outdoors and asked why you did going to your mailbox. Because I don't know who's walked here without a mask and left droplets from breathing in the air. Droplets, which might be a virus and which can linger in the air for a long time. You did get tired of your own cooking, so you learned some new things, tried some new foods. You did get tired of your own company, but you learned new ways to entertain yourself. And of course, you learned how to Zoom. But sometimes the losses could be overwhelming whether they were COVID-related or not. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. There aren't enough words to express this grief. Her stalwart fight for women to be recognized as human beings is truly one of the greatest struggles in history. Because she was that good, we put the burden of saving the entire country on her and that backfired big time. Representative John Lewis, certainly at the top of the civil rights pantheon of icons, Representative Lewis was someone who could have worked to tear down the country that had almost killed him for the color of his skin. Instead, he decided to serve that country, to change it from the inside institution by institution. We shall not look upon his like again. Chadwick Boseman. Now, why would I even bring up an actor after those two? Because in his performances, he made his characters, whether they were real or fiction, touchable, relatable to audiences, who might not have ever heard of them. His Jackie Robinson was a subtle yet powerful performance that made you understand what the real Robinson endured. And the Black Panther. 
Bozeman made a fictional character, a comic book character, so real and so human, you wanted to hope there was indeed a benevolent king of a technologically powerful and rich African nation. Jim Lehrer, a journalist with integrity and humility overflowing, a man who sought to get to the heart of the story and brought the truth out with him. His expectations of our newsmakers were high, and he never feared shining the light of truth on anyone. Dame Diana Rigg. This is the actress who inspired one of my own characters and who, through her portrayal of Emma Peel, showed me women can fight back and hold their own against an enemy. A little bit of Emma Peel and Dame Diana Rigg lives on in my character, My Fisher. And the toughest loss for me comes last. John Le Carre. I've already written an appreciation of his life for my blog, and I've talked about it here, so I won't repeat any of that, except to say he's a hard act to follow. And I don't even suppose that I could even try. But he will inspire me to write the best, most realistic espionage stories I can. None of this is to diminish my friends' and family's losses this year. Those touched and affected me, too, far more than I've expressed verbally. As difficult as it was to lose people who inspired me, that pales in comparison to a sister, a mother, a son-in-law, a friend. I felt those, too, every single one. But let's not put too much pressure on the year 2021. He is just an infant right now, okay, getting ready to be born on the 31st of December. Or she, who knows. We still have a lot to deal with. We have a vaccine but it's not being distributed very quickly. So that means there will be more COVID-related deaths before they slow down and diminish, before that so-called herd immunity kicks in. So we have to figure out a way to get vaccines to as many people as possible in the least amount of time. In normal circumstances, we could trust the government to manage that. They did it for the polio vaccine. I remember I was a kid, but I remember it clearly how everyone lined up to get that vaccine because the thought of getting polio was overwhelming to people, especially people with children. And we all understood that polio was not a hoax. People of my generation, we went to school with someone who had polio and had been affected horribly by it, or we had it ourselves and had to learn how to walk again, how to breathe again. 
So we have an understanding first that vaccines are safe when they're produced properly and that viruses, epidemics, pandemics aren't a hoax. Of course, it is going to get better. We'll become accustomed to physical distancing, to social isolation, to wearing masks, and to learning more about ourselves. That is, that we're far more badass than we realized. We did what we needed to do, and we survived a plague of medieval proportions. Well, not really, but I'm a writer, so hyperbole is a tool. So we have to be patient with 2021. Don't expect too much of him or her right away. This new year, we'll confront old and new challenges. So let's do our best to make 2021 a revival, a restoration, and a year we won't want to forget. So, Happy New Year. To all of you, my readers, my listeners, you've made this year worth surviving. So let's move on to my new release coming out on February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2021. So starting off the new year with a bang. The book is called Love Death, and it's inspired by a piece of music by Wagner. I may have explained this before, but the final movement of the opera Tristan und Isolde, the final movement, which is called Liebestod in German or Love Death. The aria is beautifully sung by any number of famous sopranos. But the piano version of that final movement was what inspired me which what evoked in me such strong emotions that I wanted to sit down and write something on the theme of love and death. So I came up with the story, a backstory almost, of Alexei Bukharin, my character, initially from Ukraine, who defected to the United States in the mid-1960s. So the book opens in 1958, when Alexei is 15 years old. And this is when he gets recruited for a special project by a man whose name you will recognize. So let's go ahead and get started with reading that first chapter from Love, Death entitled Handsome Young Men. People's Collective Number 11, Outside Kiev, Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, 1958. More often than not, people mistook the boys for twins. They had the same blue eyes the same shock of white blonde hair. The older one, by a few months, had a more muscular build from the years spent working on the collective, a tan to go with it from the summers where he stripped off his shirt. 
the younger boy had the cool, calculating expression of a disinterested scholar, though that was deceptive. He was interested in everything. The older boy was a piano prodigy. The younger loved hockey. These boys, cousins, came from a family with close ties to the October Revolution, but in the 1930s Stalin had purged not only their famous relative, but also their grandfather, one or two of his brothers, and other more obscure members of the family. Unspeakable crimes against the revolution was the charge, meaning they'd been Leninist and Trotskyites, which didn't sit well with Stalin's paranoia. The surviving family members had struggled to overcome the taint of their name and learned to appear loyal to both family and state, as embodied by Comrade Stalin. They also understood the shortcomings of the form of socialism administered by the coarse Georgian, but learned to manipulate the system for their benefit. Both boys excelled in communist youth organizations, seeming to the world to be shining examples of Soviet manhood. They both stood out in academics. They enjoyed each other's company, though they came together only in the brief summers when the younger boy made the train trip from Moscow to Kiev to work on the collective. The older boy, in particular, looked forward to his cousin's visits the older boy was the youngest of five children. The two oldest had died with their father in Stalingrad. The next older son had taken to his duties as patriarch with zeal and had already married and started his own family. He had little time for a much younger brother who was nothing more than a pest to him. The younger boy was an only child and had bonded with his cousin because they both lost their fathers early. The younger's father died of a heart attack when his son was six. Of course, he had memories of him, but they grew fainter every year. The older cousin had no memories. His father had been executed by the Nazis three months before his last son was born. Once, when the boys talked about their father's deaths, the younger cousin had said, Heart attacks are sometimes an epidemic in Moscow, especially in the government. I think my father had to die because our name was too much of a reminder to the Stalinists in the party. They consider Ukraine the backwoods. No one attaches any significance to the family name here. You are probably right was the older boy's taciturn reply. With the forwardness expected of a Muscovite, the younger boy was fascinated by the girls who worked alongside the boys on the collective. Their bright smiles and firm bodies stirred the city boy's blood. But the older boy professed no interest in them. I have grown up with these girls, he said. I will look somewhere else. One summer, the one when he turned 14, the younger cousin had fixated on a girl named Sofia, but she had eyes only for the older cousin, who ignored her. 
that didn't stop the younger boy from stealing a kiss. Sophia's reaction, a well-placed kick that left the younger boy nursing his balls, had made the older boy look at her differently. Not only had she made the older boy, always so serious, laugh, she also showed him women could have their own minds, something he found he liked. By the end of their 15th summer, both boys had filled out. Their broad shoulders, sun-bleached hair cut the same way, their Slavic faces making them indistinguishable. They worked hard, played hard, solved the world's problems during their nightly philosophical debates in the room they shared, and swore they would be friends for life. One morning, a week or so before the younger boys planned return to Moscow, the two came down for breakfast in their work clothes. The older boy's mother, who was the collective's manager, sent them back upstairs to change into their suits. The younger boy had grown so much over the summer, his traveling suit no longer fit, and he had to borrow one from his cousin's older brother. Back downstairs, the mother examined them, took a comb and some spit to tame cowlicks, and pronounced them Krasiuye, Molodie, Lidi handsome young men. To protect their suits from their breakfast, she tucked napkins at their necks, fed them well, and told them to wait in the parlor. With a portrait of the older boy's father looking down on them from over the fireplace, they waited almost an hour before they heard a knock at the door and the mother speaking in low tones to someone. When she brought the visitor to the parlor, the boys stood, flattening their ties and buttoning their suit jackets. The man, not yet thirty, wasn't tall, but he was stocky. Not Khrushchev stocky, but he would become that way without more exercise. He had an affable smile for both boys, but they couldn't help but stare at the port wine birthmark like a splash of drying blood peeking through the man's thinning hair. He must have been accustomed to the scrutiny. He gave them no remonstration. The man smiled at the mother. My goodness, how do you tell them apart? The eyes, said the mother. The color is the same, but the shape is not. The man studied each boy's eyes. Ah, yes, I see that slight epicanthic fold in your boy's eyes. He looked at the mother, whose brown eyes were similarly shaped. From your people. The mother's eyes became steel. From some anonymous Mongol rapist eight hundred years ago, she said. Her son flushed. The younger boy stifled a laugh. And my son is left-handed, she added. My nephew is right-handed. I see, said the man. He shifted to stand in front of the younger boy. Can you learn to use your left hand? The two boys exchanged a glance. I suppose so, comrade, the younger said. A step to his left, and the man stood before the other boy. And you, 
Could you use your right hand? I play piano, was all the boy said. Yes, of course, I am aware, the man replied with a nod. He stepped back so his glance encompassed both boys. He addressed the older boy. You are Alexei, and your father was Nikolai, correct? Yes, comrade, said Alexei, his eyes straying to the portrait. The older man's eyes followed, and a smile may have crossed his face. He looked at the younger boy. And you are Nikolai, whose father was Alexei, yes? Nikolai looked at his cousin Alexei and grinned as he answered, Yes, comrade, but not this Alexei, of course. The man's soft laugh was low, as if he wanted no one to hear him express joy. The elder Alexei, indeed. Your fathers were brothers, yes? Twin brothers, said Nikolai. Horosho. Now, I have it straight. Alexei Nikolaevich, Nikolai Alexeyevich. Boys, please sit. I am Misha, and we can stop being formal. Is it acceptable to call you Alyosha and Kolya? Yes, comrade, they said in unison. Misha took a comfortable chair, relaxing back onto its cushions, his posture almost a slouch. The mother took a second matching chair while the boys perched on the edge of the sofa cushions. Misha said, You're probably wondering why I have disrupted your work on such a beautiful day. <laughs> An interruption from work is always welcome, Kalya said, grinning. Not a commendable attitude toward good socialist work, comrade, Misha said. Kolya's grin faded, and Alyosha elbowed his ribs. I, I am sorry, comrade, I was joking, Kolya said. Yes, Kolya, I understand you're the gregarious one, and it was I making a joke at your expense. Why are you here? Alyosha asked. His unusual eyes narrowed. And I also understand you are the quiet one, but one whose words carry weight when eventually spoken, said Misha. He studied the boys again and leaned forward toward them, elbows braced on his knees, hands clasped. Any joviality left his face, and the expression he gave them was stern and unyielding. What I am about to tell you cannot be repeated to anyone. If the two of you discuss what I am about to propose, you must never do so where anyone can overhear. If you get some socialist conscience about what I am going to say, and report me to your local political officer or the KGB, you will not be believed. Is that clear? Yes, comrade, again came in unison. I am here to speak to you about something called Krasnya. Krug, Misha said. The Red Circle, said Alyosha. Yes, it is a highly subversive organization. Dedicated Leninists and Trotskyists formed not long after Stalin took power. Both your fathers were members, and your mothers. Alyosha's eyes flicked to look at his mother, 
She nodded to confirm. Over the years, Misha continued, we have placed people loyal to our cause in all parts of the government, the party, the military, even the KGB. And what is your cause? Alyosha asked. From within our country, to restore the revolution, to end what Stalin created. Stalin is dead, five years now, said Alyosha. But the perversion of Lenin's socialist vision continues, is entrenched. That is what we ourselves must bring down, because, frankly, if we let the Americans do it their way, not many Russians or Americans, for that matter, will survive. We are few in number, but have a long reach. We have a plan, developed by us with some, shall we say, international assistance. It is something we knew would take decades to achieve, but now is the time to begin a critical part of this plan, one that has important roles for both of you to play. Leaning forward, Alyosha asked, What if we do not wish to participate? Alexei Nikolaevich, his mother began. Natasha, said Misha, turning to her, it is a proper question. He can ask. He looked at Alexei. You can refuse, but I would prefer you hear me out in totality before you say da or niet. As long as I can say yes or no, Alexei said. You can, but I think you may not. If you should refuse, what I have said concerning secrecy remains true. Oh, and if one of you refuses, the other will not be accepted. The plan requires two. The two of you, specifically. The boys looked at each other again. Their shrugs mirror images. They both looked at Mikhail Gorbachev and listened to what he had to say. Okay, so there's your little teaser. The first chapter of my new novel, Love, Death, which is available for pre-order now. Cover reveal coming up in a couple of weeks. Pretty cool cover, I may say. Very noir-ish. So it's befitting the subject matter, which is a classic Cold War KGB versus the West story. It was a lot of fun to write, even though it has a very heavy-handed ending. Of course, you know, none of my endings are clear-cut happily ever afters, and this by far isn't. But it was a, a story I enjoyed writing, and with that particular piece of music I mentioned in mind throughout the whole thing. So if you want to pre-order a copy, you can go to my Amazon author page, which is amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan, all one word. And it's coming out on February 14th, Valentine's Day, because I'm pitching it as a love story 
but not what you're expecting. So there we are. I hope you enjoyed that short excerpt from Love Death. I hope you're going to have a wonderful new year. Season two of Real Spies Real Lives podcast will start next Thursday, which was the 7th of January, I think, maybe. Anyway, it'll be season one, episode one. I mean, excuse me, season two, episode one of Real Spies Real Lives. We'll continue with reading from Love Death and chatting about writing about spies, about writing about spies. So remember, if you are going to go out tonight to escort 2020 off the planet and welcome in 2021, remember, wear your masks, stay physically distant, and keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.